The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. As the world has changed dramatically in recent weeks, our jobs have changed too. If you're looking to explore the science of making work not suck in these trying times, you should check out Work Life with Adam Grant, a podcast from TED. This season, you'll learn how small wins can help you fight burnout, how you don't have to fight loneliness at work alone, and why Momofuku restaurateur David Chang thinks job interviews are broken. Listen to Work Life with Adam Grant wherever you get your podcasts. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. We live in a time of overwhelming choice. Even during quarantine, most of us are faced with lots of options. Some decisions seem totally simple, but they're really overwhelming. Shout out to my Netflix queue. Others are really, really important. What college should someone attend? What kind of jobs should they apply for? And what happens when you have to decide between two pretty good options? Sometimes when you have too many choices, it gets hard to make any decision at all. Today I'm talking with Patrick McGinnis. He has a new book out. It's called Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. When Patrick was in business school, he came up with two terms to describe these types of decision fatigue. One is FOMO. I'm sure that's one you've heard of, and yeah, he's really the guy who coined it. The other is FOBO. I bet you haven't heard of that one, but you'll get it immediately. Here's Patrick. FOMO. What is it? FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And it is the anxiety that there's something out there that's happening right now than better than what we're doing at the moment, combined with a desire to be part of the crowd and not be excluded from a beneficial experience. Oftentimes, this is aggravated by social media, but it's been part of the human experience since uh, the earliest humans. I was going to say, this feels to me like actually it's the Instagram problem, right? You go on Instagram and you're like, well, I'm kind of having a dumpy old Easter here in the rain with no Easter basket for my kid and like the same conversation I've had with my wife every day. But on Instagram, everybody else is at a party I didn't get invited to and their tables are set more beautifully. So there's definitely an Instagram or a social media problem for sure. And I think that's why we have a special word now that, that came up in the age of social media. In fact, I invented FOMO when exactly at the same time, Mark Zuckerberg was across the river from me at, at Harvard. He was an undergrad. I was in business school. He was inventing Facebook. I was inventing FOMO. It is very much tied to the realities of being able to easily compare ourselves with others and to be connected with others. Uh, It's keeping up with the Joneses. That's from over 100 years ago. We have always compared ourselves to others. The difference, of course, is now we can do it with far more ease than ever before. So that's FOMO. I mean, that's this idea of comparing ourselves to others. But then there's this other just complete decision fatigue that comes with having to think ahead and make decisions independent of that. And you have it you have a term for that as well, right? Yeah, so it's called FOBO. And even though I invented it at the very same time, FOBO never got famous. It's been getting a little bit more popular, I think, because nowadays people are starting to feel it more and more. And what it really is, it stands for fear of a better option. And it's this idea that we want to maximize, that we want to have the absolutely perfect thing, that we want to choose the best thing for us. And we are willing to wait around until that shows up. The problem is, of course, we never know if and when that's going to show up. But in waiting and waiting, we procrastinate and don't make any decisions at all. 
Gosh, even hearing you articulate that makes me think about most big decisions I make in my life. You can make spreadsheets and spreadsheets of options and options right now because you have more information than you've ever had about the options that are available to you. I mean, that's certainly one reason. But like, why else do we have such fatigue around decision-making right now? Well, one of the reasons is because we've never had as many options as we have today. So anything you can think about, take the example of college. When I was applying to college, you had to actually fill out a form, and it was a whole situation. Nowadays, people apply to tons of schools because of the common applications and because the culture has gotten to the point where people feel like they have to, right? There's a sort of arms race between students. When it comes to jobs and it comes to our careers and, and moving around, we have far more flexibility than our parents or grandparents had. So all of our lives have become so choice rich. And that is, that's really what happens. That's the sort of, if you think about systemic problem that creates FOBO is the fact that we have many more choices than anybody ever had in the past. And that- ex- But Patrick, stop, stop it a second, because that, that's also the gift of our time, right? Like, you know, my grandfather, he was a minister in Germany because his grandfather was a minister and his father was a minister, and he did not know there were any other options for him. The fact that I can choose from a bazillion different professions and I can train myself to do a million different things, that's what he was working so hard for. You're telling me it's also a bad thing. It's a bad thing when you can't actually take advantage of that. So college choice is a great one because there is a deadline. You have to make a decision at one point or another. But when it comes to more sort of existential uh, sort of decisions in our lives or business decisions where there is no sort of, there's no sort of deadline, we get stuck in analysis paralysis and we don't even get to benefit from the vast majority of the options that are on our table. And I think that's where we see the problem these days is that more choice doesn't mean that we actually make the choices we need to make. Right. It actually means that we are often or we can be slower to make the choices that we need to make. Precisely. And it also means that because there's so much choice in every aspect of our lives from what we're going to buy on Amazon or what we're going to watch on television, that we can spend lots of time procrastinating because we spend too much time on the little choices that don't matter. Well, I, I like to think of that procrastination as research, Patrick. There's always more research to be done about what Netflix series I should be watching tonight. Um, Netflix is a great example, actually, or not Netflix per se, but TV, right? Because I'm the first to tell you that right now I'm spending a lot of time at home in the evenings because I'm not going out because of the quarantine. And I will tell you there's nothing to watch. I can find nothing. And it's because I found everything and I don't know how to optimize for the right thing to watch. That's right. There are 7,000 things you can watch on Netflix. I looked it up. And you can feel, (laughs) right? I mean, and I've watched like 6,943 of them at this point. But we can fool ourselves into thinking that doing the research, as you put it, and that's a very nice way of saying having FOBO, because it's virtuous to try to do the work. And in fact, you do have to do some level of research. But there becomes a point where the diminishing returns make it so that you're just stuck and you can't move forward and you don't get the benefit of all of that opportunity, all of that choice, because you don't choose anything at all. You flip off the television and just sit there. Right. So you've got some great examples of this in your book. So you want to share one with us that gives us a great sort of business context for when this gets us into trouble? This is a classic problem that we see in traditional industries. And this is the reason why a lot of companies lose out to startups because startups have limited resources and time. They have to be decisive because there's no other option but to be decisive. Big companies, on the other hand, have the luxury of huge R&D budgets and getting finance and marketing and all these cross-functional teams together. And of course, those are good things and and they can be very productive. But one great example that I give in the book that just blew my mind is, is Audi. 
and how they tried to develop an electric car. You know, Audi is a company that their sort of motto is advancement through technology. And they have a R&D budget of more than 5 billion euros a year. And they decided early in the game to get uh, a product out there in the electric vehicle space. This was actually in 2009. And they tried a test, they made a concept car, and then they changed it, made another one. And every year they were launching a new concept car. And as they did, they never committed to one design or one idea. And so they never actually even got a car into the market until 2019. Meanwhile, the Pure Play startup, which is, you know, obviously Elon Musk and Tesla, comes out with a car in the early 2010s. They launched the car. It's not perfect, but they get it out there. They get the market built. And because of that, even though they're a much smaller company and produce far fewer units, they're worth so much more than Audi today. So it's that you know, classic example of the laggard that gets stuck in analysis paralysis and loses out to the upstart. So it's not about a better product. It's about getting the timing right. And you wouldn't have gotten the timing right if you didn't simply make a bet and go with it. Yeah. You, you can. The, the reality is if you don't make any decisions, then you never have a chance to make another decision down the line. By getting the product to market, you open up a new decision tree where you can make another set of decisions and you keep on going. What Audi never did was make that initial set of decisions that allowed them to refine the product, to get it out into the market, to learn and to advance so that they could actually keep up and be a leader in the space. So that's a great business example. I wonder how it applies to individuals as they manage their careers. So I think careers, it's interesting. LinkedIn actually did a study where they found that 40% of people feel that they have FOBO in their careers. And this came out a couple of years ago, so I was pretty stoked to read it because I was glad to see somebody else was thinking about FOBO as much as I did was. Did they use the word FOBO? They did use the word FOBO. Isn't that incredible? Right. Yeah, right on right. LinkedIn. And I, I think a great example of this is uh, is is a story that that I that I talk about in the book, and I, it's on a no names basis because the person who did this is a good friend of mine, and I said I want to tell your story, and he said do not include my name. But basically, that's how I feel about every confused decision I've ever made. So keep going. I, I, I like I now I put mine way out in, in public, of course, now that I talk about decisions all the time. But my friend was uh, he, he was working in a private equity firm that focused on um, a particular region of the world. And he wanted to move to another region. And so he started putting feelers out there asking for basically, I want to live in this country and I want to do private equity there. He started looking for different things, and he found something in a nearby country that wasn't perfect, but would have met his, his objective perfectly. It was basically the right role, the right firm, a great city to live in, and he was you know, very happy to have it. But the minute he got the offer in hand, he sent an email to a friend of his at another firm in a nearby country and said, hey, I got an offer at this place. Can you help me figure out how to turn this into more offers in your city? And then he went to bed and he woke up in the morning and he realized that rather than having sent an email to his friend, he had sent it to the company that had just made him the offer. And so, exactly, I mean, it's a, it's probably the, the biggest mistake I've ever heard of. And so, you know, he basically put into jeopardy a job that he would have been very happy with in order to get something slightly better. And in fact, what happened at that moment was that the firm that had given the offer said, you have 24 hours to accept. And if not, you lose this opportunity. And so, of course, he took it, but he had no leverage to negotiate. And so basically, by trying to trade up, by treating this sort of experience like it was a Tinder feed, he ended up really sort of almost losing this opportunity and then entering the workplace when he eventually did start at this firm with sort of a bad reputation. Okay, Patrick, but let's talk about that one a second, because isn't isn't the real moral of the story there to look at who is included in the two line of your email address? I mean, that's a mistake I've made a ton. 
Um, but shouldn't he be out there looking for other opportunities so that he can negotiate if he's found a job he wants? Here's the here's the thing. We should always, always try to find the best thing that we can. But this behavior, and I see this all the time, it, it turns into a life quest. You walk into the restaurant, they're giving you a table, and you see this all the time in New York City. Oh, can I sit over there instead? You order food at the restaurant and you're eating off of half the people's plates. It is one thing to try to get what you want. It is another thing to constantly, constantly be trading up, looking for the better option, looking across the room to see who better you can talk to. Because when you do that, it becomes uh, it becomes less about what you're actually trying to achieve and more about just trying to optimize your lifestyle all the time. I do feel like that quest, that need to optimize defines my experience as a person. Like take flying, for example. You know, I, I fly Delta. I figured out how to get into the Delta Gold, but then I realized that people in Delta Platinum were getting something more. I figured out how to get into Delta Platinum, but then I realized if you board first, you get like an inch more leg room for your luggage. So I figured out, I optimized how to get to the front of the line. I mean, the game is optimizing. It's not actually the experience, right? It's winning out at being able to feel like you've bettered the experience. Yeah, it is. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting the best. There's no. I'm not saying to you, you have to take the worst or you have to just settle. That is not the play. But the reality is, is that there is a way to try to pursue the best, but at the same time, be decisive. And what you don't want to do is spend so much of your time trying to optimize that you find out that actually, if you wait too long, the very options that you're going after become unavailable to you. So we think these options are going to be available to us forever. But if we wait too long, if you're dating six people and they all find out about it, you may have no options at all. So you have to eventually make a decision in order to move forward. Yeah. So what tools do you give us to actually be able to do that, Patrick? So there's two really uh, interesting elements here. The first is when you are making decisions for yourself, there's a set of strategies. And the second is when you're dealing with other people, you're dealing with the people who are indecisive. What can you do to push them towards making decisions. That's almost worse than being indecisive, by the way, is trying to navigate business partners and life partners who are indecisive. Right, that's the problem with FOMO. Listen, FOMO can be bad and there are mental health implications to it, but at the end of the day, FOMO is kind of, you're, you're hurting yourself. FOMO not only affects you, it affects all the people around you. It's like smoking cigarettes. There are secondary effects and that that's what makes it so damaging to you and your relationships. Yeah, so the strategy. So I have th basically broken up decisions in my life into three categories of decisions, and I call them high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes. Those are things that for no stakes, you won't remember uh, making in a day. For low stakes, you won't remember making in a week. So low stakes might be something like, oh, what, you know, which printer am I going to buy? No stakes right. is something like, um, what am I going to have for lunch? When it comes to those low stakes and no stakes, I encourage you, if you cannot make the decision, because most of the times you'll be fine, but when you get stuck, outsource them. For no stakes, outsource them to your watch. Like I literally look at my watch and assign each half of my watch face to one of the choices. And then I just look down and see what the second wow. one is. That's a fun yeah. little I call it asking the watch. So what did the watch say that you should have for lunch today? Well, today I didn't have to ask the watch because I knew. But I'll give you an example. Yesterday, uh, I was thinking, should I go out for a run? I couldn't decide. And I was really stuck. And so I asked the watch and the watch said to go for a run. And I did. Socially distanced. Good on you. And then with low stakes decision, which are a little bit more important and may require some thinking, I simply outsource them to a person. 
It's really about delegating because what happens is when you start to delegate, especially when you're a control freak, you realize very quickly how liberating that is. And that is really uh, important when it comes to getting past these uh, insignificant decisions and making time and space for yourself to make the decisions that really matter. I hear you. And what I want to know is what you do when other people around you are terribly indecisive. When somebody has FOBO and they will not decide, you must box them in. And I'll give you a great example of how a business did this that I thought was really clever. So everybody here probably has used a service or heard of a service called Hotel Tonight. Oh, yeah. Good old Hotel Tonight. You Basically, the idea is that you can... um, you go on there and they give you a limited number of hotels to choose from in a city. So maybe it's New York City of nine hotels to choose from. And that's the idea is to make it simple for indecisive millennials to, to pick a hotel. So I, I interviewed uh, the founder, Sam uh, Shank, for the, for, the, for the book. And he said, listen, that strategy is supposed to beat FOBO. But actually, we found that there is still tons of FOBO. So we created something called a daily drop in which every day when you go onto the app, they give you one hotel that for 15 minutes is on a massive sale and you only have 15 minutes in which to pull the trigger. And they actually found that people either pulled the trigger right away or in the 14th minute. I'm laughing because I've used Hotel Tonight and I have been the person who pulled the trigger in the 14th minute. Yeah, I have too. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> Nobody's perfect, but it works, right? Right. What, what we can learn from that example is that when you are trying to get other people to make decisions, you have to give them set boundaries. You have to basically say to them, uh, let's not postpone this decision. I'm going to give you till five o'clock today to let me know. And if you do not respond, I will be doing this. And so therefore you create a deadline and you force people to actually act. And if they don't, you have a plan already and you just proceed. It is a great strategy. I'm trying to think about how it would work on the person in my life who is the most daily indecisive, which would be my wife. My wife, she, she, she would be the first to tell you this about herself. She can look at a closet of clothes be set to go out in an hour, and an hour later she will still be standing in front of that closet of clothes saying, what am I ever going to wear? Um, To think about trying to help somebody like that to delicately actually make a decision feels like boxing them in isn't always the most effective from a people standpoint. Yes, listen, I think when when the boxing them in situation is really meant to mitigate when somebody's behavior is having a very negative effect on you, for example, in a commercial relationship where they're stringing you along sure. over and over and again and it's going to eventually you are sort of you cannot wait for them forever. So it, that that is that is absolutely d- different in sort of a home scenario. I think the most important thing to do with somebody like your wife is the basic step is sometimes naming the behavior itself and having sort of putting a label on it is the first step in changing behavior. And so I like to name and shame FOBO all the time with people. And I found that when people know that it exists, they notice this behavior that it's not productive and that it actually does have very negative side effects on themselves and others, that they will begin to try to find ways to mitigate it. Like with your wife and choosing clothing, that's where you got to ask the watch. If she tried that, that's it might could really help. And it sounds so silly. You think like asking the watch, and by the way, she could actually even do it with four different outfits because you know you have four qu- quadrants on a watch. But I remember when I first started doing that, it was a friend of mine in college who told me to do it. And I thought to myself like, ah, this is a bit silly. 20 years later, 
I still do it multiple times a day. The more people that have heard about this, because I talked about this in the TED Talk I, I did, the more people that have heard about this, the more people have come to me and said, like, this is one of those little life hacks that I never thought I would employ, but has actually had a meaningful impact on my life. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we have been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Well, so we're in this really interesting moment when it comes to decision-making, Patrick. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic, which means that most of us, if we can, are working from home. And it's changed a lot about the way that we've worked and the way that we live. And one of the biggest things it's done is it's it's enforced all of these limits and boundaries where before there were none. And one example is, where am I going to work today? The answer uh, of the answer to where am I going to work today in February was, well, in the office, maybe in my office, maybe in a conference room, maybe in a cafe, maybe I'll go to the local WeWork, maybe I'll maybe I'll stay home today. And today the office the answer to that question is I'm working upstairs in the corner bedroom, which is the one place where my family isn't currently. And um and that's just one example, but there are all these new constructs. And I'm wondering if you think that it will make us more effective at the things we want to do over time. I've been thinking a lot about FOMO and FOBO right now. It's because this is such a seminal moment in our lives. And and one thing that people probably may not know is that I actually invented the word FOMO as sort of my own personal response to living through September 11th in New York City. I was very impacted by that day. And similarly, around that time, there was the implosion of the tech bubble. And I was a VC at the time and saw all my investments blow up. And so overnight, I realized all the things that I felt were pretty secure in the world, my safety economically and physically, were uh, were illusions. And so as a result, I felt like carpe diem that I had to make the most of every moment. And so it caused me to want to do everything. And that's where the FOMO sort of came from. And I ended up writing this article uh, about this, this mindset when I was in business school, because that was really how I decided to live my life from that point forward. Now, I think there has been uh, an interesting shift this time around. Of course, there was FOMO in the beginning as we all scrambled to buy toilet paper and to make sure that we had all the basics so that we felt safe, right? And then we closed our doors and we locked them and we stayed home. And we had this moment of kind of 
simplicity and emptiness and space. And there was a lot of joy. And I felt it myself. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, I've been meaning to read this book for three years and I read it. I've been meaning to learn how to cook. Um, I'm trying, you know, so all these moments of, of connection with people that you hadn't talked to. And in fact, a lot of people, uh, were talking to me and, or I would see on Twitter things like, well, I guess FOMO's done now. And I thought, well, maybe it is. And geez, you know, this is really strange. What has happened, uh, which I think is really interesting is that after a couple weeks of that space, something else has, has started to permeate how we think. And that's the fact that, um, we, we are missing out on, being able to go to the movie theater or the Broadway show or on the subway or to a kid's sports game or to see our families. And so this, this deeper, I would say, more profound sense of missing out and fear of missing out on that, that life that we used to live and we don't know when it's going to come back, it, that's what's happening. And I think there's real value to that because at the end of the day, so much of these problems have to do with not appreciating not having the gratitude for the small and simple things in life. And so if we can reconnect with the good in the things that we do, perhaps we will appreciate them more. My prediction is um, that once things revert to normal and we have our lives back, which I hope is very, very soon, that we will see an intense period of everybody wanting to do as much as they can, because we will once again have something to miss out on and we will feel the FOMO. But I think it'll be okay because fearing uh, missing out on something when there is something worth missing out on isn't so bad. That loss that you talk of that we may be feeling now for the things that we realize we really want to do, Patrick, it's so different than FOMO. It is the opposite of FOMO. It's realizing the things that we actually lost mm -hmm. versus the things that we stopped doing, right? They're different, right? Like I, I don't actually miss my daily subway commute. I don't miss being out three out of five nights because I was having dinner with people that I thought might be interesting in, in the future. Um, I do really miss going to my mother's house for dinner. And so maybe the takeaway after we're done is that we'll step into the things that we really want in our lives and leave go the things that we don't want as much. That's what we can hope for. I think I, my, my hope is that, that as human beings, we'll come out of this with a much better sense of what we value. But I also know that when, when the life does go back to normal, we must, we must absolutely be vigilant not to return to that sort of cycle of behavior because we, uh, we should all be very, very keen to learn as much as we can from this experience so that we can make more out of our lives and, and choose the things we actually want to do and miss out on the rest. That's really critical. And that's, that's the lesson I'm hoping to impart to people is that it's possible to do so. You just have to spend the time and the energy and, and, and be mindful of it. Is this, a, is this a time when it is easier to make decisions because there are less options? You know, I wish it were, but let's, let's take, for example, the response to COVID-19 by our government, right? So there are certain people who very early on took decisive action, even though some of those decisions were very difficult and it would have been tempting to wait and say, you know what, it's not as bad as we think. Let's wait a little longer. Let's get some more data. Let's wait three more days and see what the, the rates look like, right? Just like Audi with the car, like, let's wait a little longer. Let's try something else. And the people who did that ended up with a far, 
far tougher set of options to choose from later on. And so you see this in a crisis that some people step up to the plate and are decisive and everybody flocks to them and other people avoid the tough calls and they find that they're actually in a far, far more damaging position. And so I, I wish that it was so easy, but I have actually, the one thing that's really come out of this for me is just that that FOBO, I used to think of FOBO as only something that, that happens when you have really, really nice options to choose from. I've, I've now believe, having done more thinking around this, that it's um, that when you're in a crisis, having any options at all is, is actually quite, quite good. You should be happy that you have options that are acceptable that you can, you can go after. And so um, it's, it's still very difficult for people to pull the trigger, even when you have the deadline and you have the data. Yeah, well put. Well, thank you, Patrick. It was great having you on the show. It was great being here. That was Patrick McGinnis. You know, Patrick also has a podcast and has a great name. It's called FOMO Sapiens. And last week I got to guest host it. You should check out the whole pod. But I wanted to share just a few minutes of our conversation from that pod, too. Here goes. Patrick, how did you see FOMO in the age of coronavirus? I mean, is this still a thing? It definitely is still a thing. It's interesting. So when I when I first realized this was going to be a thing, because I think I don't know, I was just oblivious. I don't. Know. Were you oblivious, or did you figure uh, it out? And uh, if you had asked me even yesterday that I would feel like I did today, I would have to say no. No, this is like it's blown my mind. Yeah, same with me. I'm a keen observer of FOMO. I thought, well, coronavirus is causing people to to buy a lot of things that that, that they're afraid they're not going to have. It's causing them to not want to socially distance because we were told to stay home, but people were still going on spring break and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was an interesting kind of moment when we all really did stay home, and so there was a period of this like honeymoon period where I was like, well, I guess FOMO is is no longer a thing. And I saw on Twitter, somebody said FOMO's dead or FOMO is so 2019. And I thought to myself, well, okay, that's good for the world, but bad for the guy who just wrote a book about FOMO. (laughs) Well, those first couple of weeks, though, they were strange weeks, right? First couple of weeks, it was all socializing all the time. And you're right. You didn't have to miss out on everything. Everything would just come to your living room. And when it wasn't in your living room, you could finally do all the things you wanted to do. Exactly. We got, we exactly. got so tired, though. It got old fast. And then I started to feel this deep sense, a profound sense of loss of this, the fact that I was missing out on this parallel life that I used to live. So I think that is the interesting thing is we realize that we actually all wish we had FOMO again. We're looking forward to having it again because we want something to miss out on. You know, Patrick, I know you've said that this this whole concept reminds you of the direct response to 9-11. So tell me more about that. What some people might not know is actually, I invented uh, FOMO when I was a student at Harvard Business School. I entered the school in 2002, and that was right on the heels of having gone through uh, the tech crash. And I worked in venture capital, so all my investments basically blew up. We fired everybody. I saw a real carnage in the tech industry. But then, of course, even more serious was 9-11. I lived in New York City at the time. I lived in lower Manhattan. I saw the tragedy with my own two eyes at the end of my street when I woke up in the morning. And so... After that happened, I just felt this sense that the world would never quite be what it was before and that somehow, you know, I grew up in a very small town. It was very, very idyllic. And I saw this this terrible stuff happen. And my response was to sort of carpe diem the heck out of life and want to do all things at all times. So I, when I got to business school, I bought a car. I 
joined all the clubs. I went to every lecture. I went out every weekend. I had a really full social life. And that was sort of my response to this whole thing was to just try to do it all, to pack every moment of my life with as much as I could. Patrick, that sentiment is what people always say when we have near-death experiences of any kind. And I've heard it come up so much right now. Like, well, this means you got to live in the present and you got to do it all. Like anything you want to do, you got to run out and do it. Just do it. Just do it. And I can't stand the pressure, frankly, Patrick. I don't know what I want to yeah, do. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I feel so overwhelmed by all the things I could do. It's, you know, how the hell can we live when we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing while we're living? And that's the problem is that you have, you have, you know, FOMO, if we look at the definition, is an anxiety that there's something better out there happening than what you're doing at the moment. And it's the desire to make sure that you're not excluded from a collective experience that you view as favorable. And so the problem is that when you have FOMO, decision-making and the things you're choosing are not coming from inside, from you know your heart of hearts, your genuine self. They're coming from external, um, external forces. If you do it properly, that can actually open doors to new activities. But if you do that all day long with everything in your life, um, you're not going to get very far. In that case, I don't think it's FOMO that has the good benefits. It's the fact that we're able in the first place right now because of technology because of the, the shrinking nature of the world to just understand so much more about what's available to us in terms of choices, right? Most definitely. Many of us would like tools to be able to make decisions better. And I think one takeaway for me was that it's not about reaching the best right option. It's about reaching an option quickly enough to be able to take action on it and keep going and move on. And so you kind of have to make peace with the fact that you're not going to hit the best option every time, that the best option, frankly, doesn't even matter a lot of the time. Yeah, the best option, by the way, is a theoretical construct. We have no idea if it's even out there or if it's something we have in front of us right now. It's also subject to our biases. But one really important thing is if you never make a choice, you will never move on to the next set of options in which to choose. And so life is about choosing something, moving forward, making new decisions and so forth and continue along the path. And if you don't do that, if you're stuck at decision number one, you can never advance. Yeah, so true. Once again, that was Patrick McGinnis. His new book is Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. And now I've got some exciting news. Hello Monday has been nominated for a Webby. That's right, a Webby in the category of best talk show or interview show. And that's where you come in. We want to win the People's Voice Award. And to do this, we need to have the most votes for our show. We need our audience to come out and raise their hands, or rather, click their mouses. You can go straight to the Webby's website and look for us in best talk show or interview show. Or you can follow me on LinkedIn, where it won't surprise you to know that I have a post telling you exactly how to do it. And congratulations to the entire Hello Monday team. And to you, our audience. Thank you. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Ferro help us get over our FOBO. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and you also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. Stay home if you can. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.
I have a little daily ritual that I've started since quarantine, which, um, cause I was like having trouble getting dressed in the morning and taking a shower. So every morning I put on some sort of different, um, outfit that's like thematic. Like one day I was French assassin, <laughs> things like that. It's really, <laughs> it's really weird. But, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, Patrick J McGinnis, you can see these daily, these daily routines that I do in it. Like this morning is a horrible day outside. Rainy, rainy, rainy. Didn't want to get up, but I thought to myself, well, I want to dress today like a cat burglar. So, or Pat Burglar, as I called it. And so I got up, took a shower and then put on my costume and it's so stupid, but I swear to God, it gets me out of bed in the morning. 